enough of that. <clears throat> Thank you for your grace. I really appreciate it. Um, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Turn there if you haven't already. I'm going to ask you guys a question. <laughs> I want you to raise your hand if you're serious about your walk with Jesus Christ. If you're serious about your faith with Jesus Christ, raise your hand. That's awesome. And because you are, that means we should receive his word when it's challenging as well as when it's encouraging, right? And I realized when I preached this last night, I thought it was going to be more encouraging, and I think it is, but I realized in preaching it was more challenging than I thought it was going to be. And so I just realized I wanted to prepare your hearts to say, I'm take, I take my faith serious, and because I do, I don't mind being challenged to do that, to do that well, to do that better. Amen? So... Here's another question. It'll be interesting to see how you answer this one. Raise your hand if you're 100% sure that you are living a sanctified life. Okay. Raise your hand if you're not 100% sure you know what sanctification means. (laughs) Maybe that's the problem. (laughs) We're going to help out with that. Let's read our text. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And then we're going to pray, and then I'm going to do a few illustrations, and then we're going to pull the lens back a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Pastor Dave covered 1 through 8 last weekend. Started in verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, that's the people you're sitting next to. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need." Let's pray. Almighty God, as we prayed earlier, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to have your way with us. We are here because we take our faith serious, and so we want to be challenged by you. And of course, we want to be comforted by you and encouraged by you and directed by you. And so we ask for you to have your way with us this morning in Jesus' name. And everybody said. So, a little bit of an illustration, a little bit that taps into this idea of sanctification. Have you ever been to a real pizzeria? especially a real, authentic Italian place. The dough is the best at those kind of places. That dough goes through some major abuse before it's ready to be served and eaten. It is slammed down on the counter. Bam! It's treated very rough. A rolling pin mashes it and flattens it out. It is twirled around on a single finger and thrown up into the air, spinning. Now, most people aren't thinking about the process of making the dough. They just want the good stuff, the pepperoni, the sausage, the mushrooms, the onions, the cheese, the sauce. But the good stuff doesn't happen unless the dough has been ready to receive it. Similarly, many people want to see the goodness of God, the power of God, or the blessing of God, and wonder why it's not happening the way they think it should. And God's trying to tell them, he's trying to tell us that the dough isn't quite ready to receive it. Sometimes we just aren't quite ready And that's a part of our sanctification. God gets us ready, and he gets us ready, and he gets us ready. And then we eat that pizza, then then we got to do it all over again. And then he gets us ready for the next thing, and ready for the next thing. 
I want to reread our text, but this time I want to do it, and I want to bring in verses 1 through 8, which Dave covered last week. I'm not going to cover a lot in that, just a little bit for a reason. I want to incorporate 9 to 12 into 1 through 12, okay? So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 4, because three times Paul talks about sanctification. Three times in these verses. Go back to verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk and please God, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's God's will for you. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, which means either body or wife, in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and we solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. It's the third time. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God has poured out his Holy Spirit into your life and into my life to sanctify you. And so we belong to him because his spirit lives within us, and therefore he sanctifies us. It's God who does this. And so if we don't allow that sanctification, you're rejecting God. Verse 9, now as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love each other. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Here's our second illustration. When you move into a house that someone else has lived in, it's your house. Even though the owners are no longer there, the previous owners are no longer there, the old people who were there may have been dirty, despicable, filthy, unkempt, unclean. The house may have reflected who they were. But now that you've purchased the home, and now that you are a clean person, I presume, (laughs) you're anxious to begin removing the dust and the dirt sweeping the floors, cleaning everything, and painting the walls. You move into that house, and because you are there, the house takes on a whole different appearance. The grass is cut, the dishes are clean, the carpet is vacuumed. Why? Because a new person has moved into an old house. Well, before you met Jesus Christ, the old person was living in that house that is called your body. But now that Jesus has moved in, it's the same body, but you've got a new resident. The new resident is holy, clean, pure, and righteous. So even though he's living in that old house, he can make it look good. Even though he's living in that old house, he can paint it up. Even though he's living in that old house, he can clean it up. He can fix those carpets and hang those drapes and straighten out everything that's wrong in my life and in your life. Why? Not because your bodily house has changed, but because somebody new has moved in. Christ has moved in. So stop keeping him from painting and fixing up that old place so that you can live life as he meant it to be lived. That's 
sanctification, allowing God to continue to clean and continue to clean and continue to organize our lives. Paul references the old life and the new life somewhat in Romans chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. He's like, hey, man, what benefit was there? What benefit were you deriving, were you receiving from the things of which you are now ashamed? The outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. You just have a better life resulting in sanctification. And the outcome of that sanctification then is eternal life. Hey, look, this verse says we're either enslaved to sin or we are enslaved to God. Something or someone is master over us. Either sin, Satan is master over us, or Jesus Christ is Lord and master over us. And so we can be enslaved to sin or we can be enslaved to God and to his righteousness. Those are the only two choices we have, church. So sanctification, I thought it would be a good time not only to talk about sanctification, but some other terms that, that maybe you hear in the church world, but you don't know what they mean. So I want to talk about regeneration, justification, glorification, and then we're going to talk about sanctification, because sometimes we get those mixed up. Let's talk about this thing called regeneration. And if you want, take a picture of this and look at it later if you want. Use your phone if you want. Regeneration is the inner cleansing and renewal of the human nature by the Holy Spirit. So when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we're given new life. Our spiritual condition is transformed from a disposition of sin to one of a new relationship with God. Regeneration involves both moral restoration and the reception of new life. The idea of regeneration is expressed as rebirth, or what we say being born again. This new birth suggests the newness of life in Jesus Christ. The process of regeneration is not brought about by any human righteousness at all, but by the gracious act of God on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. Justification. It's a legal term. Justification is the act of God in bringing sinners into a new covenant relationship with himself through the forgiveness of sins. It's a declarative act of God by which he establishes persons as righteous, That is, in right and true relationship to himself. It's an act of a judge. It's a judicial act of God whereby believers are at once absolved or pardoned of their guilt, all of their guilt, and accounted legally righteous. It's like standing before a judge and you've committed multiple, 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 multiple crimes and that judge says you are free as if you've never committed one. That's what it means to be justified. The way I remembered it years ago is justified, never sinned. That's how I remember justified. It's justified, never sinned. Right? Now let's talk about glorification. In the process of salvation, Paul lists glorification as the last and final event. Glorification is the completion, the consummation, the perfection, the full realization of salvation. I look forward to that day. We should all look forward to that day. And lastly, sanctification. I think the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833 states it perfectly. They say, we believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness. It is a progressive work. Church, 
That's what it means to be sanctified. Are you progressing in your maturity, in your faith, in your walk with God on a daily basis? You should be. You should say that you've grown from last month to this month, from last year to this year, from yesterday to today. That's what it means to be living a sanctified life, that we are growing in our walk with Jesus Christ. It says it's begun in in regeneration. It is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, we need to lean and press into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one that allows us to be sanctified every day. We should be praying to the Holy Spirit. There's the person of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and the person of the Holy Spirit. It's called the Trinity. We need to build our relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us, that allows us to live a sanctified life. By the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, in the continual use of the appointed means, especially the Word of God, especially the Word of God. Self-examination, well, the self-examination is examined against the Word of God. Self-denial, the self-denial is, is, is measured against the Word of God. What should I be denying myself of? Watchfulness and prayer, amongst many other things. In fact, Timothy or Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says as much, he says, my wife and I just talked about this the other day, all scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable for four things, four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be adequate and equipped for anything God asks us to do, for every good work. And so those four things, and I've said this before, this is how you remember these verses. What's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. The teaching is what's right. The correction is what's not right. The, what's the next one? Uh, no, the reproof is what's not right. The correction is how to get it right. And the training in righteousness is how to keep it right. Right? So for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, God wor- God's word tells us what's right, what's not right how to get it right, and how to keep it right. If we're going to live a sanctified life, we need to know those four things, church. We need to know what's right. We need to know what's not right. We need to know how to get it right, and we need to know how to keep it right so that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can live a sanctified life. We have that responsibility. That's what we're called to. It's such a great challenge for us. Church, if we are truly being sanctified, Or let me put it another way. If we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, then we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to God, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to others outside the church family to know what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. There's nowhere where we can go where we're not responsible to God, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to those outside the church. And that's what our text is going to show us. That's what it means to live a sanctified life. Lord, help us, right? We need help. We can't do that on our own, but we can through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells each and every believer. I'm going to leave this up. There's three words. Check this out, right? See, this responsibility to God, to our brothers, and to others. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 4. For this is the will of God. Now we see our responsibility to God here, right? This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain, right? That's one of those what's right, what's not right. We have a responsibility to God, as this quote shows us, to do certain things and to not do certain things. So we see God represented here. What about our brothers and sisters in Christ? Look at verse 10. 
For indeed, you do practice. Practice it. Practice what? That's love. That's what's mentioned in verse 9. You do practice it toward all the brethren. So he's commending them for their responsibility to God and to their brothers and sisters. Now, what about outsiders? Look at verse 12. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Our sanctification is a progressive work that never stops, that we have a responsibility to, and how we relate with God, how we relate with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and how we relate with those outside the church. We have a responsibility to every person that breathes. That's just an immense challenge for me, and I think it is for you as well. Let's read verses 9 and 10 as we go through. We're going to do 9 and 10 first, and then we're going to do 11 and 12. Verses 9 and 10. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, Paul says, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Isn't that interesting? For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. As we've gone through this letter, one thing we know about this church is that they loved really well. They loved well. Go back to chapter 1. Look at verses 2 and 3. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. Hey, look, is it easy to love some people? Oh, you can giggle now. Go ahead. It's okay to giggle. It's hard to love some people. I love labor of love. It's hard sometimes. My wife and I have an amazing relationship, but she's difficult. I'm sorry. I'm difficult. I always get that backwards. It's hard. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6, he says again, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. And then, of course, we just read it in verses 9 and 10. Let's read it again, chapter 4. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. That's hundreds of miles but we urge you to excel still more. This church loves well. They love well. Church, this thing called love is an unmistakable demand of the Christian life. This thing called love is a demand. It's an unmistakable demand of the Christian life. And we, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we just throw that word around a little flippantly, a little loosely, but it is serious business to love the way God has called us to love. It's not a man-made demand. It's not a church-made demand. It's not a pastor-made demand. It's a God-made demand. Look again at verse 9. He says, Paul writes, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Wow. Wow. Look again at chapter, <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12 says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another 
and for all people. Right? So, this verse, chapter 3, verse 12, declares our general calling from God to love all people. That's our general calling from the Lord to love all people. We're to love him, we're to love each other, and we're to love all of mankind, all people. And now in 9 and 10, we see a specific calling. Now as to the love of the brethren, he says you practice it, but you're to excel still more. So here we have a specific call in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. From the Lord to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me put it to you this way, (laughs) and I did this for for effect. (laughs) We have a God-ordained, God-orchestrated, God-instituted, God-arranged, God-designed, God-intended, God-composed, God-founded, God-commanded calling to love, and especially to those that we call our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a big, big, if not the biggest part of our walk with Christ of our sanctified life is our call to love. If we don't do that, nothing else really matters because scripture says the greatest of these is love. Everything else will fall behind. One commentary says this, I love it. Because a fish has a fish's nature, it swims. That makes sense. Because a hawk has a hawk's nature, it flies. And because a Christian has God's nature, he loves because God is love. Look, as verse 9 tells us, if you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, that's what verse 9 says, right? Paul says, I have no need to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. If that's true, and it's true, if you yourselves are taught by God to love one another and refuse to practice what the Lord has taught you, What chance do I have to speak into you? What chance does anybody else have to speak into you if God has already taught you to love one another? Wow. John records in his gospel, Jesus' words, John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus is a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The opposite of that is, if you don't, that means all men will not know that you are my disciples. That's the opposite of that. If you don't have this love for one another, then all men don't know that you're his disciples. And then at that point, you'd have to say, am I actually a disciple then? Because that's what Christ says is necessary for us to be considered disciples of his, followers of his, sanctified people that follow him. Let me ask you another question. Right now, in your life, I asked Allie this, and who else was in the room? Is it Karen? Right now in your life, what do you have a sense of urgency about? Think. I want you to take a second and ponder. What, what, what sense of urgency is going on for you? What do you tend to have a sense of urgency about? either today or this last week or the last year, this last season of your life? What comes to mind, I wonder? Okay, now let's look at verse 10. For indeed, Paul's commending them, you do practice love toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you to excel 
still more. Paul wants the church at Thessalonica to have a sense of urgency about loving even better. And so whatever you thought about, whatever you thought about, what do I have a sense of urgency about? Me, like you, probably didn't think I have a sense of urgency to love better. That probably didn't come to my mind either. More than that, I wonder how often we actually assess how well we actually love. Do we, at the end of the week, say, Lord, it's been a good week, it's been busy, you've had some challenges, but I really want to be honest with you, Lord, about how well I love this week. So, God, let's have a conversation about that. And you assess how well you love that week. And if we did assess, and I'm not sure we do, but if we did assess and our grade was high, Lord, it's been a good week, I've loved so well, I give myself a 99 if your grade was, was high, would we then assess after that how we can excel still more? Because that's what the scripture tells us. Or do we give ourselves a 99 and just say, I'm nailing on this love thing. And if people knew what I knew, they'd be as awesome as me on this love thing. As a matter of fact, I just hope people can see how well I love that they'll actually ask me, man, how do you love so well? Is that what we would do? Or would we say, man, I was a 99 this week. Lord, Holy Spirit, teach me, show me how to love and excel still more. What a great challenge for us. Here's some questions. A simple question. Are you loving? Are you loving? The second question is similar. Are you loving with excellence? The third one might be a little bit more problematic. If you are loving with excellence, how do you feel about the urgency of having to do so better? Does that make you uptight? Or does that encourage you and does that challenge you to say, wow, how can I excel still more? One last question before we go on to verses 11 and 12. Are we willing to ask someone in our lives that we truly love well how can I excel still more? Are you willing to do that? I did that with Terry yesterday. Did I not? I said to Mama, my wife, sorry, I call her Mama. I said to Mama, do I love you well? And she says, yes. And I says, I want you to think about how I can love you more excellently, how I can excel still more. She's funny. She says, are you trying to tell me something? which I thought was great. I'm like, no, I didn't even cross my mind. I says, I really want to do this. And so I told her, don't tell me now, but I want you to think. I love her with excellence, but I want her to tell me in the next day or two how I can excel still more. And I would encourage you to do the same. If you love somebody with excellence, ask them, how can I love you with more excellence? How can I excel still more? That's a real practical application to God's word for us. Amen? Verses 11 and 12, let's read those. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and, and to attend to your own business and to, work with your own and to work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. The emphasis clearly in these verses is on our witness to those outside the Christian fellowship. We have a responsibility to God in our sanctification. We have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But church, we have a responsibility in how we behave to the out, people outside the church. We have a responsibility. That's part of a sanctified life. We have an obligation for our lives 
to be good testimonies to the people of the world. We have an obligation. If we're going to be sanctified people, we, end, we need to understand our obligation to the Lord, to one another, and to the world. There are three things that we're to make our ambition, this verse tells us. Really quickly, the first one, to lead a quiet life is what it says. <laughs> we'll probably relate to this. Paul is encouraging them to lead a less frantic life. Hey, raise your hand if you feel like life's frantic. And so when life's frantic, guess who gets cut out of the equation? The Lord. Scripture. The Holy Spirit. Prayer. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Bible study. Serving. He's saying, man, lead, lead a quiet life. An enthused and a grateful life, but a quiet life. We lead a frantic life. And God gets cut out. Being more at peace with yourself and with God enables us to be a source of peace to others and we can't be a source of peace to others when we're leading a frantic life. It's hard to slow down. And there's just certain areas where that's just more difficult, where the speed in places like Southern California just seem to move faster. I remember years ago, I think it was 1995, the first time we went to Hawaii. I think we were there for seven days. It took me till day six to slow down and we had to leave the next day. It seriously, it was so weird. It's like, what's happening here, man? It's like, everything was just slow. And I didn't get it. And by about day six, I'm like, yeah, this is pretty cool. What time's our flight tomorrow? Like, that was a bummer. When I went back the next time, I chilled really quick. We just run at a rapid pace. We do. The second thing that we're to make our ambition, it says to attend to your own business. Ooh, man, I wish I had more time on this. We are not to spend our time interfering with the affairs of others. It only causes us and others trouble when we do. When we realize just how little we know of other people's business, it's unloving when we act as if we do. Believers who are about the Father's business don't have the time or desire to meddle in the affairs of others. Be about God's business, not other people's business. And the third thing it says to work with your hands. A self-supporting person is not a burden to others. And there's always certain circumstances where people have stuff going on in their lives. But in general, we're not to be a burden to others. We're to take care of ourselves and we're to help others. And we do that when we work and when we're productive. Christians are not to be a burden on society, but they're to relieve burdens in society. As a tent maker, Paul sets a great example for us. He never wanted to compromise his witness, his testimony, his message by being a burden financially to anybody. And so he was bivocational, as they say. These behaviors win the respect of non-Christians and Christians alike. Warren Wearsby says this, he says, I love it. He says, as believers, we must be careful in our relationships with those outside the church. It requires spiritual grace and wisdom to have contact without contamination. Sometimes we contaminate the name of God by how we live our lives. And you hear those stories Somebody cuts somebody off and they give them the finger and it's somebody from church. You hear this all the time, right? We can't contaminate. We must contact. We have a responsibility to the Lord, to others, and to those outside the church. The responsibility, the responsibility that we have to God, to our brothers and sisters, and to others is rooted in purpose. It's rooted in purpose. It's to make his name known. It's to draw people to himself. We are to always be people of purpose. We're always to be people of mission. 
All of this is rooted in purpose. Church, matters of the church aren't just about the church, but also those outside the church. Amen? Let me close with this. Our sanctification is running at full speed when we understand that we have a responsibility to God, to brothers and sisters in Christ, and to others to know what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right, and it's a progressive work. I'm going to say that again. Our sanctification is running at full speed when we understand that we have a responsibility to God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, others outside the church. We have a responsibility to those three people groups to know what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. And it's a progressive work that you should always be able to look back and say, am I progressing? Am I progressing? Am I progressing? I pray that we all start living a sanctified life every day. That next time I say, are you living a, a, a sanctified life? Are you 100% sure you're living a sanctified life? Then you can say, I am. I'm living a sanctified life. Amen? Amen. Thank you, guys. I'm going to invite up the worship team. I'm going to pray while they're working their way up. And if you need prayer, see our prayer team. Let them pray over you. Fill you with the Holy Spirit. So God does his work in you. Let's pray. Almighty God. You never cease to amaze us. Your word is so rich. We're moved by your word. We're changed by your word. Lord, we thank you that you've regenerated us, that you've justified us, that you're sanctifying us. And one day, Lord, you will glorify us when we, when we go to be with you. You are so good to us, Lord. You do amazing work. Lord, we thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.